0: Okay. Mm-hmm. do something dramatic like ring a bell <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you have one of these um, paramita charts with you if you don't Maybe the person next to you has one. Um, can I see if you don't? Because then we'll know how many more we have to make for next week. Do we have new ones? Or that? I can go make them. A- ah. Yeah. Well, we'll make some new ones for you right now, in, in fact. Make a whole lot, Marty, so we uh, have some for next week because we'll continue to use them and use them and use them. So one of the things that I really want to continue as the ongoing discussion over all these uh, weeks of the Paramitas is Paramita practice as a path to clear seeing. We come here together and normally think of Spirit Rock or any kind of medita- uh, a spiritual venue in the in, in the West, in the Buddhist tradition. People say, I go there to meditate. And we did meditate this morning. It's not so often that people say, I'm going for having my weekly morality lesson now, or I'm going to go hear, I'm going to go hear a lecture on generosity or ethics. Uh, you know, maybe we don't come for that. People come for mostly because they want their minds to feel better, and they want to get a little space between themselves and what's their pressing concerns of their mind, what their mind is tense or worried about, tensing or worrying about. And in fact, coming and sitting quietly and focusing the attention on this present moment is in fact a way of having the mind quite directly relax and often have a new view about those very problems that it was all tense about. I had new views as I sat this morning. Did you? Mostly the kinds of new views that I have are an annoyance that I have with somebody. You know, I have a very large and varied family. Either an annoyance or a worry about how I'm going to accomplish something. How am I going to get that done in the length of time or the way it needs to be done or something that's uh, uh, some problem that my mind has been working on and hasn't solved. And I don't sit here and try to solve it. I sit here and actually do try to do what the instructions are about Try to let my mind relax and be present just moment to moment. When it does, as it does, what happens is quite unbidden often. Insights arise that uh, solve my problem, whether it's how am I going to get that done and say, oh, you could do it that way, or you could do it that way, or someone else will do it, or you can give it in late, or whatever, the answer to the problem which, I, which was there all the time but not available to my figuring mind, is right there. It's one of the possibilities. It's just a possibility I haven't thought of up to now. Or an annoyance that I have about some irritation with somebody in my family, in the world, or whatever. All of a sudden, my mind, in a more relaxed way, somehow it doesn't have the strength to pick up the narrative of that irritation. If I think about that person, it thinks... Well, you know, they were just being like them. You know, <laughs> they couldn't be different. I mean, it isn't like they didn't do that thing or say that thing. They did or said that very thing. But it doesn't seem so annoying all of a sudden be in the context of they were just being like themselves. It's the, the other way of seeing that is I don't have to take it personally. You know, that was it's, not, it's just what they do. Somebody years ago, Deborah Tannen, in one of her first books, said there are, there's limits to what beings can do based on what kind of a being it is. She said, if you arrive at your apartment door and you hear the phone ringing, this is the days before phone answering machines, right? Yeah. So you hear the phone ringing and you're fumbling, fumbling in your purse looking for your, your uh, key because you really need to get to the, that message. And You fumble, fumble, you can't find the key. You finally find the key, you open the door. Just when you get the door open, the phone stops ringing. She said, you do not shout at your Great Dane for not having answered the phone. Or Actually, she said, you don't shout at your St. Bernard for not having answered the phone. St. Bernards do not answer the phone. It's out of their sphere of competence. So if somebody in my family has said something in an impromptu way that I took umbrage about, if I think about it in a relaxed mind, I think two things about them, Three things. I think I love them. They love me. They often shoot from the hip. Those the are three true things. And uh, I don't have to make a fuss about the shoot from the hip. I don't have to take that personally about how could they have done that. They did it because St. Bernard's don't answer the telephone. Everybody is, everybody is just like them. But I need for my mind to be in its right mind for me to remember that, and also that I love them and they love me, and it, it's I don't have to take it personally. It's just doing it. They are just doing their thing. So mostly, I think, the 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 uh, when we think about I need to go to meditate, we think about I need my mind to relax, so I'll have a. You know, I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll straighten out the knots in, and tangles in my own mind, at least for, you know, until tomorrow or until I have to sit down and straighten out the knots and tangles again. But I think that if I think a little bit in a long range way about what's my hope, my hope is that I'm going to be kinder in general from paying attention. Because at the same time that I realize everybody is just like them, I really will realize that everybody's struggling just like I am with knots in their mind, with short fuses, with whatever it is. We all get born with a, 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 a um, we all get dealt a certain hand of uh, attributes and talents and uh, limitations. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about, um uh, um uh, Ani Tenzin Palmo, who you may remember six or eight months ago, I talked about her here. She's a Tibetan uh, nun and a teacher. and uh, she among the things she did was uh, stayed uh, 11 or 13 or 12 years in a cave in uh, uh, I guess the t- cave was in northern India somewhere, by herself, in a cave. And when I met her, and I remember talking about her here in class, she's quite marvelous. She's a couple of years younger than I am. She has the brightest countenance. Her eyes sparkle. You know, when I first met her and we sat down to talk, I thought, "Wow, maybe I have to go in a cave." You know, <laughs> she has a really a wonderful aura about her. And we talked, and she she doesn't make the cave business a big part of her. You know, many times we talked, and I asked her many questions. If you were here, who was here when I met her? I don't want to tell too many times the same story. Have oh, school. you just happened to have a picture. Me today. Cave in the Snow. Have you read it yet? No, I just brought it to start reading it today. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. you love it. You see her beautiful picture here on the cover, and we do have this in the bookstore. Diane Perry, who became Tenzin Palmo, secluded herself in a remote cave 1,300 feet up in the Himalayas, cut off from the world by mountains and snow. There she engaged in 12 years of intense Buddhist meditation. She faced unimaginable cold, wild animals near starvation and avalanches. She grew her own food, slept in a traditional wooden meditation box, three foot square. She never lay down. Her goal was to attain enlightenment as a woman. It's an amazing thing, and she is amazing. And when I asked her 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 about the, I asked her the nitty gritty things of staying in a cave by yourself before cell phones away from everybody. What if you got sick? How did you go to the dentist? You know all the kinds of. Well, did you get snowed in? I did get sick. I didn't go to the dentist. I did get snowed in. On the most dire things, she said, uh, she contracted some virus and woke up blind one day. And stayed blind for the better part of a month, as I recall. And uh, I said, uh, "What? You know, uh, were you frightened?" She said, "No." She said, "I thought." Here's, I recited to myself a line of a Buddhist understanding: "Either you're sick or you're well. If you're sick, one of two things: either you get better or you die." She said, so I didn't know which was going to happen for me. So I just waited to see which one happened. So that is amazing to me. <laughs> that is amazing you know I, if i get up and i have some terrible sudden thing like if i got up blind i would be on the phone in 2 seconds you know and figure out how to call 911 or do something you know that so i'm at, but i tremendously have awe for her and i talked to a friend of mine who is more a very serious practitioner long-time practitioner who has some illness not as not a not at all life-threatening but she said, you know, I worry about it a lot. It's on my mind a lot. So I said, you know, I think people do. We're animals. We, You know, we we notice when something is out of kilter, out of functioning. We, we worry it until it gets better. At least we get advice about it. She said, but, you know, I should really be able to uh, rise above this because I've gotten advice. And people say, I don't know what you have, but it's not bad. And, you know, it seems to come and go and come and go. So we talked about that, and I said, listen, I want you to feel better about not being, so to speak, better about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell you that I am not better about my stuff. But here's a story about Anitenza Palmo, and I said, I'm telling it to you in the hope that it isn't going to make you feel more demoralized. It's going to elucidate for you why we shouldn't feel demoralized at all. There are people who can do this. And people who can't do that, like St. Bernard's, don't answer the telephone. It doesn't have to do with what a capability that everybody has. And she's very clear about it herself. She said, the thing about me that I teach is, is my understanding about the nature of suffering, the nature of a free mind. It's not about the nature of sitting in a cave. She said, that's just what I chose to do. Other people will choose to do something else. Very, very helpful to me to have that as a as an understanding, that what we are really trying to do here, what I am trying to do, is not become heroic. I'm trying to become the best of me that I can be, given the hand that I've been dealt. They get dealt a, a mind that's a little bit fretful about uh, bodily distress, or a lot fretful about bodily distress. I can I actually wish for myself that my mind settle down and relax about the fact that I'm fretful about body distress. I'm going I to be able to do a meditation that says, I am very distressed about what isn't working right in my body. May I feel at ease about my distress. May I not feel embarrassed about my distress. My, my distress soon pass. If I don't fight with my distress, it's likely to be less. It's likely to pass all the sooner. But to say distress is what's happening in this body, or melancholy is what's happening, or irritability is what's happening. To have a mind that's really hospitable to the whole palette of human emotions. I don't get angry or annoyed quite so much. It's just that I'm not. That's not my nature. I get I get worried easily, but not so angry easily. I don't think it's a great <clears throat> talent. It's just in the hand that I got be- dealt. I think, though, that what I hope to become from my practice is not that my talents will necessarily get better or my uh, limitations will disappear, but that I will be more kind out of the recognition that everybody has talents and limitations, that I don't have to be anybody but myself. Does that make sense Steve? But But uh, really kindness that comes from wisdom. You know, my husband, when he wants to tease me sometime, or is lacking for breakfast table conversation, will say, uh, how has your uh, 30-some years of meditation practice changed you? Which, you know, is, is, you know it's like a normal conversation for breakfast. Time. And I will say all the time, I became more kind. And he will say, you were always kind. And I think that's relatively true. I think I am kinder err. Out of the awareness that we are all struggling so much. It's more painful for me to be unkind. Like in a hospital, you don't raise your voice, right? Especially when you walk through an intensive care ward. You see, everybody here is in a lot of pain. I don't have to add to it. I think what what this does is it increases my ability to see that we're all in a lot of pain. And all of these paramitas, all of these qualities of heart... Our responses to the awareness that everybody's already in pain—that we start from a baseline of pain. Anybody needs a paper? Here we go. Thank you very much, Marty. Uh, I thought I would just mostly lay out some things that are uh, thoughts that I had. I—I I, I was not so much as. Um, conclusions that I've come to but thoughts that arose in my mind by figure, by thinking about morality last week we thought about generosity so here were some thoughts that I had and you will I hope add to them 10 or 15 years ago a friend of mine Then in rabbinical school, did her senior thesis on uh, the development of morality. And especially thinking about uh, the fact that religious traditions have all of them a... uh, One of the things that is a highlight of religious traditions is that they come with codes of ethics, morality. They come with Ten Commandments or five precepts or eight precepts or books of instructions on how to live. And so a code of ethical behavior. Houston Smith in The Religions of Man, I don't remember it exactly by heart, uh, talks about basically to all the major religious traditions that he knew well. He said that those codes had to do... uh, with being aware of uh, the distress that you would call, cause other people by doing any of the things that are prohibited by the code. You notice in, those of us who were here this morning uh, early for the precept said I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. And then the precepts, all after that, that's the first one, all are reflections of the first one that the second one, I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. Um, I remember that Houston Smith says, uh, unless you're a monastic, in which case you don't have any belongings, he said uh, the, the, the various religious systems that he knows doesn't limit your um, building a little pile of stuff for yourself. you can You can... You can build up assets. Everybody can uh, free to go out and build up their own assets. You're not free to take assets from your neighbor's pile. That really, he said, is disruptive. In everybody's religion, you're you're on your own, and whatever you reap, you you have, but not take anybody else's. Uh, so that we say, as the second precept, not take it, not take anything that isn't freely given. The third. Is not uh, use sexuality in a way that's exploitive or abusive. Recognizing that sexuality is, our sexual expression is a very potent instinct, um, and the desire to express it at different times can be more or less troublesome in people's lives. To be aware of it, of not using uh, that impulse and that desire, which really is a desire that that the world rests on to continue, uh, that we make affective bonds through, but uh, not to misuse it in a way that's hurtful. Not to misuse speech. We need to speak to each other to communicate, but not to misuse speech in a way that is uh, exploitive or abusive. And uh, not to allow us, uh, not to do things that confuse the mind that lead to heedlessness we did all of those five precepts this morning and the fifth precept which says intoxicants that cloud the mind. I very much like to add to the the notion of things that substances that that we ingest that cloud the mind that might might lead to heedlessness but things I do that might lead to heedlessness. I definitely needed after the last presidential election, To make myself a moratorium on TV watching because I was overwrought from TV. I was. I was becoming overwrought before the election and I allowed myself to continue to be overwrought and and I could see it happening. Could see it manifest in my short, in the length of my fuse or the degree of irritability or that disrupted my sleep. And may not have for other people. I don't want to say that everybody should take a rule on no television. But for me, that rule about intoxicants, I really need to look further than substance abuse, but really other kinds of abuse. But all of them are really relate to the fact that if I if I didn't pay attention to them, I might cause pain to myself and other people. And I think that all of these precepts really have to do with recognizing that we live in a relational world and we couldn't cause pain. So, the, the paper that my friend was writing as her senior thesis was an explorer, was a, a, a kind of a debate, a forum about how do we get to be moral and uh, 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 do we have an innate sense of morality as human beings or what builds a morality and uh, So she had several of her friends write in and uh, talk about is it something that we learn from our parents and our community and uh, um, is it something that uh, we really uh, uh, confirm or affirm or are motivated to or transformed to through the recognition of two things, how of recognition of the fact that every single thing we do makes a difference and has a ripple effect out and that the ripple effect might cause pain and that along with the ongoing awareness that there's already so much pain in the world would I want to add to it with more pain along with the awareness that uh, a guilty feeling in the mind is unpleasant Is that true, by the way, a guilty feeling in the mind is unpleasant? Mm -hmm. It is for me. (coughs) How do you feel? Let's pause. I'm talking, talking, talking. How do you feel when you have a guilty feeling in the mind? Can you describe it? What's a guilty feeling in the mind? I feel it like right here. So Cindy says she feels it right here, like attention. attention. Yucky feeling, attention. What do you feel, Susan? Opposite of a satisfied mind. It's the opposite of a satisfied mind. Yeah. Constricted. Distracted. Constricted. 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 Small. Small. It feels like the um, odd between totally empty and overwhelmed. The junction between feeling empty and overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Betty. I give it a different name. I call it regret. And then that starts a whole different thing and so regret starts a whole different thing I think regret is different it's more positive it's m- more positive. and remorse remorse is like in the field of regret maybe it's maybe it's semantic to think it's even different from remorse remorse is not only I did it but whoa I don't want to do that again you know that uh, yeah <laughs> terrible, things. <laughs> terrible things to you that you did it right. <laughs> Yeah, had roof. sick to my stomach sick to her stomach I feel burdened. burdened i think often what's your name daryl daryl i think daryl people often say i need to unburden myself of this uh i make a clean breast of what i have done we sometimes say Guilt and shame. Feeling way too visible and wanting to be invisible at the same time. Way too visible and the need to be invisible. Yeah? Lingering. You can't get rid of it. It, just it lingers. Happen. You can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. As a, In contrast to, not as opposed to, but in contrast as Betty is bringing up, regret, remorse. I think that I think that I very much like the word contrition, you know. I feel um, we don't use it so much outside of religious context. I feel contrite about what I did, but I, I think that you know, the contrition is. I think you tell me if it's not this for you, the sense I'm not going to do that again. And do, you, do you recognize that? Can you can you become contrite if you haven't confessed if you haven't unburdened yourself? Sure. How can you get there? To sure, Betty says. Um, think of an action that you can do to um, rather than like a negative thing. You can change it there again to a positive thing an action. So I think in the twelve in the twelve step programs, that one says we made a so have made a searching moral inventory and where possible made amends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me guilt is more about what I didn't do and contrition is more brewing what I didn't do when contrition is more about ruining what I did do. Oh, that's interesting. Guilt is <laughs> ruining what I didn't did do. didn't <laughs> didn't do and if contrition parents you didn't you know whatever you didn't do. Ah, uh, and contrition is what you did, did do. You. do that you wish you (laughs) hadn't. Both bad feelings. Yeah, yeah. So do you wonder, as I do, about... Because it sounds like we're of a mind, more or less. Anybody has another opinion? Because I, I continue to think about how it's possible for people who are physically adults, intellectually competent, to do what seemed to me tremendously immoral things and not notice. Uh, there was an art, there are several articles in the paper that I thought about this week. Oh, I didn't tell you the end of... Uh, I have to go back. Remind me where I was. But I was in the middle of telling you about my friend Sheffa's project in rabbinical school. Somebody else, not me, was saying... The important thing to uh, experience is really the fact that we're all suffering so much and that I am connected to everyone, and if I do something, it ripples out. So it is adult insight into really the significance of actions that makes morality manifest. Uh, I was not willing to give up on the importance of training empathy and training morality in children at an early age, because I'm not sure that if people, I'm, I'm not sure about human beings uh, growing up with an indwelling sense of morality if they haven't developed it through an ongoing relationship with parents who behave in a responsible and a reliable way with them and expect from them uh, an awareness of other, as a result, does that make sense? Let me say it another way. Babies are born. I don't think they're born so much with an in inborns. I think they have an, a nascent capability to learn that there are other people in the world and that how they do affects the other people. We don't imagine that a one-year-old should share. You know, the the notion of uh, you should share with your cousin is nonsense to a one-year-old or, um, it, or uh, wait a minute, don't cry now, I have to finish this, I'll be right back, is nonsense to a one-year-old. There is only the one-year-old and their needs, his or her needs. People get to be one and a half, somewhere coming up on two, we say to them as they, uh, uh, reach over and are going to rummage in our purse because they're bored in the doctor's waiting room, say, no, this is mommy's purse. You play here with these boxes over here. We start to make a difference between this is so and so's, this is yours, this is what you're supposed to play with, this is mine. That's actually physiologically they are capable at uh, somewhere between a year and two years of knowing the difference between themselves and somebody else. The, the psycho- developmental psychologists think it has something to do with their ability to locomote. As soon as they can make a distance between themselves and somebody else, they suddenly get the idea that there is them and you. For the first six months, you know, there definitely isn't a big difference between them and you. And in the first six months or a year... They cry. All they have to do is make themselves known. And magically, if they're fortunate, their needs get attended to. So they develop some sense of ease in the world. In that sense of ease in the world, which is, I think, a necessary preliminary step, they get to have a a bond uh, with that person that provided the ease. By and by, they can discriminate between a face that's familiar and a face that's not familiar, and they feel good with that face that's familiar that shows up. They don't actually know the difference of a face familiar or unfamiliar. They actually know that they do by recognition studies very early, but it's not that significant. Uh, a, A supportive, comforting arm is pretty good no matter whose arm it is up to a certain space up to a certain amount. I think the last I last I read it, it was somewhere around six or eight months when they discovered that not everybody is the same. But at some point later on, that person having provided solace in their life, now saying, uh, as they uh, pick up the cookie and are going to throw it off the table because they don't feel like eating another one, and you say, no, 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 don't throw on the floor. They think about it. And you see that it's very interesting to throw it on the floor. You know, you could notice, I mean, it's an experiment. I'm going to tell you right away about an experiment about Isaac Newton saw an apple fall. It's interesting to drop a cookie on the floor. But somebody else who's significant to you says, no, no, no. And that little mind weighs the no, 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 and the interest in not displeasing the no, no, noer, and the interest in dropping the cookie, they put it back down if you have enough uh, you know, credentials with them <laughs> to be significant, where you're an important person to keep on their side. It really, you have to have you spend a year or two years getting credentialed, and then you have enough credentials, and people think, if I do this, which would be interesting, give me pleasure to do it, but it wouldn't give the other person pleasure for me to do it. I don't think they think that significantly, but the brain figures out, this doesn't give pleasure to other people, I therefore inhibit myself. In the, in the in the most obvious ways, people are running around and they're pooping and peeing wherever they feel like. And at some point, someone says to them, from now on, you won't do this anymore wherever you feel like. You'll let me know and you'll do this in a particular place. It's not what they actually feel like doing at that point. But they learn that at that point, they have the physical wherewithal to think, okay, I'll do it that way. The idea that there are other people in the world whose needs you need to fulfill, otherwise mm-hmm. they feel unhappy. Is a really key point in the development of what in what we understand to be the development of empathy. So that we, it's the beginning feeling of, I know what that other person must feel like now. All of the ways that we behave, uh, I think, if, if we think of ourselves as be, behaving. Uh, with awareness of other people is how we would feel based on how we would feel in that moment. When I'm in an airplane and it's bouncing along, I all of a sudden and I'm by myself and I turn to the person next to me and I say, you want to talk for a minute about other flights you've been on that have equally bounced and that uh, arrived safely? They always do, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, I'm not so much doing it for that other person. I'm doing it for myself also. And I'm assuming that because I would like to have a conversation with somebody, that they would like to have. I always say I know a person who was a flight attendant for United Airlines for more years than anybody ever was. And in all her years, never was there a bad thing that happened. Really, you know a person like that? Whoa, I feel much better. So... but I'm doing it as much for them as for me because in the meantime time is passing and we're having a conversation I think and I am assuming that they would be eager to enter into this conversation how do I know maybe in fact they're praying and I've just interrupted their (laughs) prayers or something they might be but I think we mostly go on what would make us feel better sometimes we blunder as a, and say something that was not welcome because somebody was in the middle of their prayers or something else but i think if going back to neoponica here if a sin is something that has as its intentional motivation to cause distress to somebody to cause pain then the opposite of sin a a, a kindness um a moral act is something that you do out of the conscious intention to make things better for somebody else. Anyway, in the end of this big debate, here was this other person saying, no, no, it, it doesn't work if if you tell people these are the commandments and people look for ways around them. People, His point of view was you, you break any commandment that you find that you can get away with unless you have... Uh, really a clear awareness of how suffering there how much suffering there is in the world. My point of view is you need these beginning teachings of empathy in order to have that awareness to begin with. The whole world is suffering as I am. Everybody else rowing around in their nutshell on this turbulent sea in order to have it. And I think as I tell you that this morning, what I'm beginning to think is you need both. You need both. You need that beginning. I think that would account for the the difference between I became kinder. I think I was kind to begin with, because I feel like like all of us are probably kind to begin with, because we we sense what it's like when the circumstances or the people are not kind to us. But I became kinder when I really began to sense. How much pain I am in We're just struggling with the best of lives. The best of lives. All of us here. What was your, I forget your name. You just moved to Marin. Deirdre. Deirdre, Deirdre just moved because she's fallen in love. And here's a, a, and on top of it, I said "Now you're living in the best place in the world. It's a wonderful thing to be in love and in the best place in the world. It's one of the best places in the world. But still, anybody here is free of suffering? Mm-hmm. Anybody who is free of suffering, the mind continues to make knots out of everything. One of the things that, uh, oh, by the way, this was one of the, I, I'll bring you all the show and tell that I brought about morality. Otherwise, I'll never get through it. Uh, I I was reading about uh, Leon Panetta, uh, uh, who is now the head of the CIA, and uh, the, the that he is known. For his tremendous high level of rectitude, morality, and uh, he's a very serious Catholic. He attends mass regularly. It says some of his friends think he's a little bit too too much rectitude. I think you can't have too much rectitude to be in public office. Um, he and he says he, being asked about we've become a uh, he said we've become. Uh, a nation of champions of human dignity and individual rights into a nation of armchair torturers. And he said, we either believe in the dignity of the individual and the rule of law and the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, or we don't. There's no middle ground. I thought that was very interesting. I'm very glad that he's a, a, a serious, uh, seriously bound to a, a tradition of ethics. I read about uh, the uh, jail sentence of Bernie Madoff. And uh, I think I mentioned in here, one of my friends had her entire life savings. She's been 75 years old. Entire life savings invested with Bernie Madoff. Mm -hmm. And totally gone. Totally gone. Very little possibility that it'll be back. Uh, This isn't the time to talk about it at length, but the extraordinary thing that she said to me, she's a... um, regular practitioner of mindfulness she said I felt everything that when I heard about it I had the phone call she said um, I was terrified I was frightened I was uh, Mm -hmm. bewildered I was amazed I was astounded I couldn't believe it she said the only thing I couldn't I never felt was angry she said because it was so clear to me that that was extra that I have enough pain just the way it was Mm -hmm. And that getting angry was just, who would I be angry at? Myself, maybe, for putting all my trust and money with this one person. Maybe I should be angry at myself. Because how can I be angry at him? I mean, it's that we're not, clearly, this is not a person that, uh, you say, well, he deliberately did it. But what kind of a person could deliberately do that? Could you deliberately? do that? But then this article in in last Sunday's uh, New York Times is uh, about, um, not about, not about Bernie Madoff, but it's about the bailout of um, the masters of Wall Street who have left us on the hook for uh, 2.5 trillion dollars paid so far by American taxpayers. To bail them out for schemes that they knew were not legal and wouldn't work. So, what do we think about living in a culture that uh, where uh, wealth is so idolized? You know, uh, it's, it's strange. It, uh, it's a it's a, uh, it's a it's a it's a peculiar thing. It's a culture where uh, if people are famous somehow. We don't think about the fact that uh, somebody earns, uh, who knows, $18 million a year or whatever it is that they earn. Um, We don't think about, maybe we do think about it all, but I certainly think about it. There's an article in um, Vanity Fair. You see, I don't only read the New York Times, I also read Vanity Fair. And the article is about the desperate situation of the people who own houses in uh, the Hamptons. So it's not so... <laughs> I hoped you would laugh about that. I hoped you would laugh about that. It's not so desperate, right? It's not so terrible to be in trouble. But anyway, it's not here, But or it's not easily here. I'm sure I had turned down the edge of it. But about um, the fact that the cost of homes there has gone from uh, $37 million to $28 million in just these few months, and uh, people are having to sell their homes. But, you know, and you think to yourself, like, where, did, where did it get to be moral to have such a big pile of money when half the world goes to sleep hungry or doesn't have clean water? Where did, why didn't somebody say this isn't right? What could we do different? I wonder if we aren't wired differently. I wonder. I I, I think about. Um, I, I don't want to sound like. Uh, oh. Um, I guess I do want to sound. It's incomprehensible to me. <laughs> That uh, I watched the television a little bit yesterday. I always watch a little bit to see what's happening before Wednesday, so I'll be au courant. And I and I did watch actually the end of the Michael Jackson memorial. Did you watch yesterday? And I listened to people talking all week about Michael Jackson, and his great gift and his great talent, his unusual life. Um, the, the uh, newspapers were uh, quite kind the day after Michael Jackson died. Somebody showed me, I think it was the Chronicle, had quite a kind article about his extraordinary musical talent, what a gift he had, and his quite unusual um, early life. And it really focused on what was extraordinary about his musical talent, which I thought was a very decent and kind thing to do about a person who had just died, and for but it's a complicated story, isn't it? Yeah. It's a complicated story. The story about the South Carolina governor, who uh, the whole question of of does people do people's personal lives it, Is it fair to look at a person's personal life and make any conclusion about them (coughs) at all in terms of their ability to to govern a state, for instance, or to be a Dharma teacher? Do people have different expectations of Dharma teachers than of uh, governors of states? Um, or presidents of the United States. uh, What do you think? Part of that is that he and his colleagues are telling people that we have to be working on family values and that it's highly immoral for people to be gay or stray at all from any of the nuclear family sanctity, and there he is doing it and lying about it. So the, yeah, Francie is Frenny. Francie is making the point that, it, apart from the possible behavior of the South Carolina government governor, the what if a person is um, hypocritical, which means that uh, in some way that they don't do incorrect, they're doing incorrect speech, they're telling lies, they're saying this but doing that. And what do you think? There's, there's an article also in uh, the quite, making quite the other point in the latest issue of spirituality and health. there's a, uh, an article about the very well-known teacher um, Gangaji. How many people have studied with Gangaji? Anybody? Gangaji is a disciple of um, uh, Punja. The disciple of Punja who was an Advaita teacher with whom I studied in the early 1990s uh, was an extraordinary teacher and he anointed several people, so to speak, anointed. He said, yes, you have it. You can go and be a teacher of this particular. um, Adyashanti is a disciple of uh, Punja. Um, Other people are disciples. I've forgotten that other person's name, it'll come to me in a minute, of Punja. Um, Gangaji is a disciple of Punja. She's been teaching for many years with her husband. There's a big article about um, the fact that her husband uh, now uh, has made public, or people made public the fact that uh, while they talked about fidelity as a virtue that he wasn't, completely faithful. And his point in this article is that it doesn't matter what you in your personal life do. You could be a flawed vehicle for the truth. I guess, you know, I see that we're coming up to 11. I want to leave you, not even leave you yet, I want to ask you, what do you think about that particular question? Can you be a flawed vehicle for the truth? All the time, there are people who govern, who clearly have maybe less than maybe what you would desire in terms of internal uh, rectitude. That's a great word. Um, Should they be able to govern? Is their private life their business? If they're Dharma teachers, is the private life your business? People have been debating this from the beginning because there were Dharma teachers in all of the lineages who have been shown to not live exactly the life that... uh, that we think of as fulfilling the precepts. Some of them said the precepts are just guidelines for those who find them useful guidelines. So, in fact, they weren't hypocrites. They just... But some of them did say these are very useful guidelines and didn't do them anyway. What were you going to say? Well, what came to mind was the comment that I, I read and in Stephen League who I followed for many years. Uh, I thought the Southeast Asian country that there were alcoholic and the wise student would only pay attention to them in the 60% of the time when they were sober. Mm. But what, what was coming up in my mind was that I think the country that he was referring to was Burma. And so it, it occurs to me that perhaps one can be too forgiving. And the, the issue about the, you know, as, as somebody else just said, the issue about Sanford is not so much the behavior but the dishonesty and in in Buddhist terms, I, I wondered if perhaps um, that contrib- when somebody is holding themselves up as a model, but it's not true. Is this contributing to delusion? That's I think a very important point. That contributing to delusion, um, and as 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 you were saying about. You know, there's uh, there's a, a level of fragmentation in Burma that's happening now. That's you know, that's extraordinary. And in in what way might things have been different if there had been a different level of rectitude thirty or forty years ago, and had that you know been different? If they, you know. you think about down the road, what is the fallout from this? When you think about the think about the word impeccability, because impeccability was not and is not any of these single virtues, but you could be impeccable about any of these virtues. And impeccability is a word that just so in, interests me. Um, I read about it for the first time, I guess I mean I would have known what impeccable was just as a as a word earlier. But I learned it as a spiritual word by reading the uh, Don Juan series by Carlos Castaneda. Do you remember reading that? Mm-hmm. And he talked about the impeccability of his teacher, and the, the teacher teaching impeccability. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the one who wrote, who wrote the Four Agreements, and one of his four tenets was be mm-hmm. impeccable with your word been around and he has two sons he's from uh, Arizona New Mexico so. New Mexico yeah, Maurice, um, yeah, you know yeah. ah so I don't know if uh, so somebody bring that next week if you can next week I want to talk about renunciation but I want to start by we'll, we'll, it will sit in the normal way and all of that but I want to have like uh, five minutes of uh, discussion. This is a homework that I want to give you because I'm going to start from this. So I want you to remember, you don't have to write it down, the homework, but reflect on impeccability, what that means to you in in um, in connection with any of these particular uh, virtues or... In your life is impeccable. Can you think of someone that you would think of as impeccable? Maybe the Dalai Lama. Hmm. Maybe the Dalai Lama. Maybe. The Dalai Lama. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama sometimes has outbursts of anger. Does that make mm-hmm. him not impeccable? Mm-hmm. No, but maybe he's impeccable with the outbursts of anger. I'm just, <laughs> I just want to, I want to keep this Ruth. What about adding authenticity? So I feel like authentic, yes. I Lama. Okay, so uh, I I don't have a pen. Authenticity, because those are not words on our uh, on our chart here. Authenticity. What is the definition of impeccable? Well you're gonna make it up, that's it. Uh-huh. Uh, impeccability. Impeccability. <coughs> Nelson Mandela come to mind. Desmond Tutu. Uh, yeah? My, my first reaction when you said, Can you be a flawed vehicle for the truth? is that we're all They're flawed all vehicles. So, so, in that sense, I think maybe it's a matter of, of degree or honesty yeah. or something. But, but yes, I have a, we, we are. There we are. What's your name? Ann. Ann, thank you very much. So I think that, that so that's, can we, can you be a flawed vehicle? Maybe it has something to do with whether or not you uh, claim you're flawed. You know. but, uh, but if you present yourself as, you know, that, what are we going to say? to make sure that he's not harming other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think even the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think anybody. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Gandhi and his, what he did to his children, yeah. as opposed to what he did for the world. Yeah. On the other hand, I think I would have rather had Gandhi as prime minister of the combined country of Pakistan and India than having the split take place and have Nehru become the prime minister of India. So I I don't have any definite conclusion in my own head, but it's something that I think about. The other thing I wanted to – when you use the word impeccability – I have a great deal of difficulty with that word because for me that word means he was impeccably dressed and that isn't something that... <laughs> I mean, that is yeah. relationship to the Okay. And so, therefore, um, I, don't, I don't necessarily respect people who yeah. are impeccably dressed. Yeah. So, Michael, maybe we're going to end up with Ruth's word of authenticity. Or truth. Or truth. Uh, but I, I'm really happy for, I'm, I'm sorry we don't have another hour, because. Yeah. but we'll start from this place next week because I really uh, didn't say fully enough uh, in the beginning, um, so I'll, I'll say it right now, take me another minute, that um, although I think as Buddhism has become known in the West, people think, ah, Buddhism, it's, it's a cultivation of... Uh, a contemplative mind. I want to remind everybody that for most of the Buddhists in the world, it's the cultivation of the paramitas, the cultivation of all of these uh, virtues of the heart, that meditation is uh, central in the practice of Westerners interested in Buddhism. And not to say that that's bad, but what I want to say is that the practice of trying to cultivate these virtues, I think can be counted on to produce the same awarenesses of the ubiquitous nature of suffering in the world as contemplation can. I think it's equally, I don't know if it's equally a viable path, but I certainly think it's a very viable path, not more, not less, maybe, but it's another path to uh, a growing awareness of suffering in the world and a growing commitment to ending it. So, I think it's a, that's really the important reason for doing it. It's about really the development of insight and the freedom, I think, that comes from that insight and freedom that comes from wisdom. So, the liberation that comes from wisdom. So, anyway, we'll start from there. I didn't read half of my show and tell. Bring show and tells. <laughs> Next week we're all going to teach. Bring show and tells. One minute, 30 seconds of wishing well for all the beings that we have had in our minds today, we'll have for ourselves between now and next week, maybe all be held in safety and in wellness and in um, the sense of contentment that our lives are unfolding with our um, guidance in the direction of uh, contentment and peace.